0: Welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azra Rapp. Episode 9, Phrenic Nerve Sparing Regional Anesthesia for Shoulder Surgery. Welcome to the Azra RAP podcast. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, and with me today, of course, is my co-host, Eric Schwenk. And we've got a wonderful guest with us today. Uh, we have Nabil El-Kasavani with us today, and uh, he's an assistant professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the VA Medical Center. And um, Eric, Nabil, great to have you guys with us today.
1: Great to be with you guys. Thank you very
2: much for the invite. Yeah, great to see you guys. Good to start off the year.
0: Yeah, we had a little bit of a hiatus over the holidays. It got hard to coordinate people. And uh, as as you guys will listen to the show in a few minutes, we don't have one of the authors of our article today because uh, coordinating doctors somehow t- seems to be a difficult task. So Nabil was kind enough to join us and he's well-versed in this topic. So I think this is going to be a great conversation regardless. Before we get to the, our topic though today, um, I do want to make a couple of announcements. First off is the spring Azra meeting is coming right around the corner. We had a uh, phenomenal abstract submission uh, for this meeting. I think that there's going to be incredible interest in the meeting. So go to the Azra.com website. Go look up the meeting. It's in San Francisco, April 6th through the 8th. Um, you know, Register for the meeting. All three of us are going to be there. It's going to be a great time. Um, come say hi to us in person. We'd love to meet you. Uh, and, and get on social media and, and talk about the meeting beforehand during the meeting. The hashtag is hashtag Azra spring 17. Uh, so tweet about that, go on Facebook, do what I'll, uh, put stuff on there and tell us about yourself and what you're expecting from this meeting. I think it's going to be great. The other thing is, is that we want you guys interacting with us on this podcast. So you can go on those same social media platforms. And if you tag at Azra underscore society, then we'll see those tweets and we can comment back and answer questions or you can uh, direct tweets directly at us uh, individually as well. Hopefully they'll be nice things, but you can send those to us as well. Uh, of course, like I always say, go to iTunes, uh, go to whatever your podcast catcher app is and give us a review and a rating. Uh, typed out comments and ratings are fantastic. They let other people know about us. Uh, that's a great way to do that. And just tell by word of mouth. Tell one of your friends, one of your colleagues about the podcast. If each of you tells one person, we grow very quickly, and uh, and we can share this wonderful resource. Um, I want to I want to plug something that Nabeel's been working on real hard. Uh, it's the Azra newsletter. If you go to azra.com, the newsletter just came out, and I have to say, Nabeel, you guys do a fantastic job with this newsletter. It's 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 such a great read, and um, I just want you to kind of give us a couple of words about what's in it this time and what do you think is really going to catch people's eye?
1: Well, thank you, Raj. It's, um, actually, we try to keep it light. We try to keep it fun and very informative. Uh, it's not like you know, a peer-reviewed journal in the sense of like you know, official peer review, but we always try to make it very informative, and we give a platform to multitudes of members, and we always want the vision that this is your Azure Newsletter. So I would actually echo what Raj, what Raj just said, that we want your interaction. We want you to interact with us. If you have any comments, if you have any ideas, that newsletter is thriving because of your ideas. None of this is like no, my idea, but it all come from you. Um, just go to the Azra website, follow the link to the bright copy to the uh, to the newsletter this uh, this month in February, you're gonna find a couple of very interesting articles. So you're gonna find some uh, hints about the spring meeting, okay? As Raj just mentioned. Also, another very interesting article that I find it was very interesting to me personally is the practice of regional anesthesia in veterinary medicine. So something that was very interesting to me, it caught my eye. Like you know, the very first time I saw the idea, and I thought, oh my god, that will be a very nice article. And indeed, it was very nice. The authors put a very nice job and putting it together. Another very nice article that highlighted the value of what we do, the value of regional anesthesia and acute pain. One of our European colleagues, Stephen Coben from Belgium, he actually did practice some anesthesia in one of the villages in Indonesia. Uh, um, I think the name of the village is Ambon. Maybe I'm butchering the name. It's spelled as A-M-B-O-N. And really, like throughout the articles, it highlights the value of digital anesthesia and um, in this underserved community. And of course, like you know, you're gonna find an article by our one and only Eric Schwink and Eugene Viscuzzi talking about the ketamine and the multiple uses of ketamine, the diversity of that use in acute pain management. So, without further ado, please just go to the Ezra website, just follow the link to the newsletter. It's gonna be great, really. And I'm really looking forward to hear from each and single one of you about ideas.
0: That's fantastic. And yeah, I did notice that uh, both of you guys got your faces in the newsletter this time. Um, So it was exciting to see that. Um, Last thing before we get to our article today is I think there's an underutilized aspect of the Azure.com website that I don't think very many people know about. If you go to the Azure.com website and you click on the link at the top that says resources, there's a whole educational area in that. Now, the educational area has lots of good information, including uh, old articles from the newsletter where we've had some fantastic uh, content that's uh, in the newsletter that's been categorized and searchable and put on that resource website. But also, there's a very important link at the top right where it says submit a resource. What we want is you guys to go on there and say, this is my favorite link or website for um, A specific kind of block, a specific anatomy, it could be a YouTube video, it doesn't really matter. What we want you to do is build your database of quality material. And if you're an ASRA member, you can register on there and submit a resource. You can go back and rate things that you read on there so people know what's good and what's not as good. And over time, we can really build as a community a wonderful resource for each of us to share. What's the best content on the web? We don't have to recreate the wheel with all of this stuff. Some people have good stuff uh, on one topic, but maybe not as strong in another, and we can build the best of all of that. So go to the azure.com website under resources, go submit a resource, check out what's out there, and if you're an uh, azure.com member, you get the opportunity of submitting your own resource as well as um, uh, rating those uh, resources to contribute to it. Okay, so let's get to our topic today. Um, The article we're going to discuss today is from uh, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine this month. Uh, The title of the article is Diaphragm Sparing Nerve Blocks for Shoulder Surgery. And this is from a combination of a group from uh, Montreal McGill University and from Department of Anesthesia in uh, uh, the University of Chile. And the author is uh, Tran et al., and you can find that in the uh, current issue of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. The article, uh, just briefly to kind of give a, an outline for our conversation, is talking about the problem of phrenic nerve block in, uh, with the use of interscalene blocks when you're doing shoulder surgery. And particularly for people who are vulnerable to uh, phrenic or hemidiaphragmatic weakness, uh, people with lung disease or prior uh, nerve damage, um, and how that impact uh, could be significant, uh, considering the high rate of phrenic nerve block with these intercalating nerve blocks. And so, the comment or the the discussion was to review what is maybe a better alternative out there, and how much better can we get. And, Nabil, I'm going to start off with you here. Um, do you, first of all, do a lot of shoulder surgery, interscaling blocks, and do you see this as a major issue?
1: So, the answer is yes and yes, right? So, we do shoulder surgery on on multiple fronts, outpatient, inpatient, you name it, um, especially becomes problematic on outpatient if you're in a surgery center. Of course, like, you know, your selection has to be very strict for patients and all that, but... Um, you do an interscaling block, you have a patient who's having difficulty breathing, you can send them out of the pack here because nobody's happy to leave really with the way that their saturation is. And that will be probably in a way or another, okay, one of the good case scenarios. Okay, because things can get like you know a lot worse than this. Um, this has actually has been a problem that we have been thinking about, and we Put together a study, okay, that actually it was. I was excited to see that it was referenced in the article that we're discussing today. So, one of the studies, I think it's, uh, you're going to find the reference to the study by Wang et al. Wang is one of my partners here. And what we did in that study, we compared the two con- two different concentrations of local anesthetics. We compared the 0.2 ropivacaine versus 0.1 in a fixed volume, which was 20 ml. And the main endpoint was analgesia. Okay, after the block, everybody went to sleep. And this was all in um, essentially healthy patients, relatively healthy patients. And we did the M-mode ultrasound to test the, how much reduction in the in the function of the diaphragm. And we also did a portable PFTs to look at the difference in the force vital capacity. And it's no surprise, okay, to anyone that the group that had the point 0.1 did better in terms of the function, and um, but they didn't do like you know, a lot better in terms of the, um, the duration of the block. Immediately after surgery and maybe like four or six hours, the amount of opioids received by both groups were similar. I think throughout the theme that we're going to find throughout the review article today that we're discussing, that whether you change the volume or whether you change the concentration, you're probably going to get like you know, very similar results. That's all if you're doing the intrascaling blocks. So, I guess the notion is how to be creative, like you know, in these patients, or how to get out of this intra groove and how to get away from that phrenic nerve. Um, it's um, and I have like you know personal opinion, okay, just about a couple of things. Some of them based on some literature and some of them based on clinical anecdotes. But I'm going to be curious to hear, like, you know, what's your experience, guys? Do you have, like, you know, similar experiences? Did you Do you see a lot of patients? And I mean, like, you know, a lot. Do you see that as a major problem or not really a major problem, Or really depends on the patients? I don't know. What do you see in your own practice?
2: Um, This is Eric here. I would say I, I don't completely agree with you based on my clinical experience in terms of, of I guess, the extent of the problem. I don't know if it's a different patient population or if we're not necessarily seeing the extent of it. I do spend some time on the acute pain service, so I do see these patients uh, on post-op day one and post-op day two if they're in-house then. And we, there have definitely been been some patients who have had the dyspnea and have had uh, subjective problems and, you know, they feel like they can't catch their breath, it's it's pretty rare for one of the patients actually to develop clinical hypoxia to the point of needing intervention other than nasal cannula oxygen. And, um, you know, I mean, I think, it, like you said, there, there does need to be some screening. And um, people, people with severe COPD, restrictive lung disease, arguably might be even worse, people with, you know, contralateral uh, phrenic nerve paresis, I think, are the people you got to think about, but that's honestly a pretty uncommon scenario. But I, I haven't really noticed as much clinically in our practice at, at Jefferson people having a lot of uh, clinically significant shortness of breath in the following day or two. I don't know if there's differences in, in the volume and technique of blocks that we're doing or if we're just not maybe picking them up quite as much. But um, my take on it would be I, I think, you know, these the alternative blocks are 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 nice but um you know i guess the question the question we'll have to get into here is do we how how often are we going to be really turning to these blocks
0: so let me let me break down the the problem in a couple of different ways here so um i think for our routine patients where their lung function is good um, even if phrenic dysfunction is occurring with these nerve blocks, I think that what I'm hearing you say, Eric, and I don't disagree with you at all, is that it's tolerated. Whatever phrenic dysfunction or hemidiaphragmatic paresis occurs is fairly well tolerated in most clinical situations. Okay, so I, I think that I agree with you on that. Um, and and I and I wonder if this article is trying to step beyond that, which is to say, okay, we know that. Once we screen a patient that we have concern about those issues, um, right now, what are we doing with the patients that we do have concerns? They are COPD patients. They are asthmatics. They are patients with uh, extreme uh, obesity that may cause a decreased functional residual capacity. They are patients with a uh, phrenic nerve dysfunction on the contralateral side. What are we currently doing with those patients, and do we have any creative solutions for providing what we consider the better analgesia, which is a regional anesthetic, for those category of patients? So let's for the sake of this discussion, let's leave out all the patients that are already screened as being uh, tolerating of a phrenic nerve dysfunction or hemidiaphragmatic paresis from this nerve block. Let's take all those patients out of this conversation. And if we just pick the patients that are high risk, what do we do with those? And so my question is, is do you still do an interscaling block? And there's some discussion in this article about different things you can do with an interscaling block, or do you go to these more peripheral or sort of uh, away from the interscaling groove nerve blocks? So that's my question. Go, Eric. Why don't you jump on that real quick? So, uh, if we're just talking about the subcategory,
2: sure. I mean, t- I think for those patients, clearly that's that's what the article is mostly targeting. But um, I would say we haven't, we don't have a ton of experience with some of the alternative blocks. But that being said, in the past uh, two months, we've had a couple patients where we tried suprascapular blocks, kind of as described in the article. And I had one lady in particular who had pretty significant neuropathy. In uh, the interscaling brachial pr- uh, brachial plexus distribution for a total shoulder open total shoulder, and we really wanted to do something for, her, but neither one neither she nor I were willing to to take the risk of of an interscaling block. So we tried a suprascapular block in combination with the superficial cervical block, which which is going to cover the the supraclavicular nerve and all the skin on on kind of on top of the shoulder, and and the you know the posterior shoulder would then be covered by the super scapular block and she honestly had a fantastic uh, post-operative course she used minimal opioids didn't really complain of of much pain at all pain scores were three out of ten and below and uh, you know I was kind of I was I was interested in in a little concern actually to see how she was going to do I thought she was going to be having a lot of pain use a lot of opioids in the PACU and it just didn't really uh didn't really turn out like that Nabil have you had anything similar or
1: no, I actually I have a question for you. Is uh, did, What type of procedure was that, Eric?
2: It was an open total shoulder replacement.
1: Okay, so so that essentially takes, like, that put my question to rest because I was going to say, also, the shoulders procedure are not created equal. Okay, uh, subacromial decompression is very different from a tetra cuff repair. Of course, it's very different from a total shoulder replacement. Or even the shoulder replacement itself, the anatomical is very different from the reverse shoulder in terms of the postoperative pain and how much pain these procedures are going to generate. Um,
0: And you also have to account for some of the arthroscopic procedures where they may have a lot of fluid infiltration outside of the immediate surgical area too from uh, excessive fluids. I've run into situations where it's not in the operative area that they're having pain. It's where the fluid is uh, extravasated out of the joint. And uh that ends up being a big source of pain for some people too.
1: yeah, and actually we see this very evident in for example, we have two surgeons, one of them tends to operate like you know, a little uh, less faster okay than the other surgeon, and they use like you know a lot of fluids and I, I completely agree with you, Raj, that this is exactly a finding that we see like you know actually all the time with different surgeons and different uh, skill sets. Um, again, I'm gonna have like you know, another anecdote that I'm gonna just just throw it out there. Do you guys think really that the the problem, okay, that we have with these patients is that I understand like you know it's from the block, but a lot of times and personal observation, and I may be off, all right. That you do the block, the patient sits in the holding area for quite a while, for one hour, sometimes even like you know, for an hour and a half and they're actually doing okay. Now we take this patient, and you put them under general anesthesia, and they come out, and you find that they are short of breath. They are not really setting very well, right? And you suspect, oh, this must be the block. Did any of you guys have, like, similar clinical observation, or you just see that from the onset, from the get-go, you do the block, and you find, like, the symptoms?
0: So my experience has been that... um I generally, if somebody's going to have difficulty breathing, they usually have it pre-op. Um, in the times that I've had somebody have a uh, clear phrenic nerve dysfunction from a block, usually it's within a half hour or forty minutes. Now, if they're in the OR in that time frame, then I may there may be a certain percentage of them that we're missing because we never have an opportunity to see that. Um, but I, I I actually have not seen too many cases where the shortness of breath is in the recovery room. It usually presents itself early and oftentimes immediately after the uh, the block is uh, performed. And so, um, again, there, there's so much, and even the article alludes to this, there's so much variation in technique. We've also, uh, just like your article alluded to, we've started using lower and lower concentrations of local anesthetic in our scalene blocks um, because we don't need, full surgical anesthesia if they're going to get general anesthesia. And we've just been giving them the big slug for so many years that we didn't really think about it. And now we're saying, Hey, maybe we don't need to do that and they'll still do fine and so we're, we've are we been slowly decreasing our concentrations as well. Same thing with volume. We've been slowly decreasing our volumes. So I'm wondering, based on the article where they've shown that the incidence of hemidiaphragmic uh, paresis is reduced with lower concentrations, is reduced with lower volumes, is reduced with targeted injections in the interscaling groove versus the traditional s- nerve stim techniques um, when you target it with the ultrasound – we don't know what the combination of all those things do. How, how much do we reduce our incidence?
1: Yeah. So I will tell you, like, you know, what do I personally do in, in our practice? So, of course, you have to chart from the beginning, like, you know, an anesthetic plan. So, if that patient is this patient having that block for surgical anesthesia or this patient having that block for post operative analgesia and they're going to go to sleep anyway. So, if this is the case and they're going to go to sleep, I tend to. Do all the above, all what you mentioned, like, you know, minimize the volume and actually focus very much on, like, you know, the upper trunk, try to stay, like, you know, posterior rather than just go anterior as much as possible. Do slow injection, right? And always try to stay really, like, you know, emphasize, inject slow and try to stay posterior. Um, And just essentially just do the least amount of volume, okay, that we can do. And... uh, even try to avoid something like the superficial cervical plexus and just target the upper trunk if that patient is going to sleep. Uh, if they are not going to sleep and this will be surgical anesthesia, we just have to make sure that the distribution is adequate. Maybe the, we don't give the big slug anymore, but I would say in the range of 15, 20 ml you know, around the entry scaling and make sure that we get also the superficial cervical plexus as well. That's like you know what we do.
0: Um, Have you guys had the courage to go down to the sort of 5ml range to do those blocks like that? I see Eric shaking his head. You, you no. guys don't do that either?
1: Eric? For surgical anesthesia, no. no.
0: I mean, even I, I for think, analgesia afterwards. For
1: analgesia, uh, I, I went down to maybe
2: 12, 10. But
1: 5, is, I think, is pushing the envelope.
0: Well, yeah,
2: I mean, I don't know. I, I guess one thing that's useful for us to discuss is that you know clearly, there's a there's a balance between phrenic nerve blockade and analgesia. And ideally, the perfect block would have outstanding analgesia and no phrenic nerve blockade, but that's what we're trying to see if that even exists with some of these alter alternative techniques. We know interscaling blocks for virtually all shoulder surgeries are going to provide, outstanding analgesia has been shown repeatedly the issue is for the people who can't get them or it's questionable you know do we need an alternative technique but i i think that if, if you go if you go to some of those low volumes i know that in the literature they seem to be able to do very well but there's just there's no way in our practice that five cc's or even 10 cc's of any kind of local anesthetic is going to be really adequate unless you're talking maybe point point uh, seven five ropivacaine but I mean, we're we're still we've definitely cut back on volumes as you guys have mentioned. So I was curious, wanted to just see what what you're actually doing in your practices. We're we're still consistently doing 20, 20 plus or minus five cc's of half percent ropivacaine. So I think that I think you're probably able to you, you know you're probably able to perform surgery with that concentration. But that's just that's kind of what we've established. And Are you guys still our general? We're still under general, yeah in, so, in the large in the large majority, not always, but most
0: yeah, we're doing um fifteen to twenty of quarter percent ropivacaine uh, mostly with uh, most of our inner scalings. Um, the one thing that always struck me about the papers that look at low volumes they talk about quality of block, they talk about analgesia in the packU, but I don't see a lot of discussion about duration differences, and I always wonder about the difference in duration when you're using that small of a volume. Have you guys seen good evidence that looks at duration differences?
1: So that that actually speaks to the study that I was telling you about. This was our own study, and we have seen a difference in the duration. So the 0.2 actually stayed a lot longer than the 0.1. What is a lot longer?
0: How much is it a lot longer? Do you remember? Roughly. Like like one hour, five hours, ten hours? No,
1: I would say maybe like four Four hours. But is, okay. But that's yeah, not a, that's this, not
0: insignificant when you're talking about an overnight block. Exactly.
1: Right? And I think, like, you know, the overall, if you talk about the quality of block, at least it was, like, you know, my impression, like, you know, when the study was going, that the point, the people who get the point two does, like, you know, a lot better than the people who get the point one. So, uh, and I, I, it's exactly like, you know, the same thing, like, you know, Eric was describing and you're describing in your practice. When we do go to these blocks, we have one range of 20 cc's, and you start doing the injection. You know, sometimes, like, you know, when, literally, if you do it with someone, if, like, you know, five cc's is in, and it's really focused, and you see, like, you know, very good spread, it, that you start, like, you know, asking yourself, like, you know, is that good enough, and or, or it's not good enough? And honestly, like, you know, a lot of times, I also think to myself and refer back to what type of procedure is this? So is that a rotator cuff repair where the patient is going to be hurting like really bad? Or this is subacromial decompression that, you know, probably a block and a multimodal analgesia, the patient will do okay. So again, like we have to put things in context. And uh, this is, I guess that speaks to what we do on every day.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I wonder if we should just use smaller syringes, little 5cc syringes, and then we won't inject that much. If that's all we have hooked up in the first place, you know, two CCs, yeah. two CCs in the tubing, three in the syringe, that's it. That's all you get. No,
2: exactly. Half the, t- half the time I look over and uh, hopefully she's not listening, but my my block nurse will have given about 10 CCs be- before I even ask, are you ready to start? <laughs> so, that, okay. but, 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 but but along those lines. In, in uh, all defense, all...
0: that's usually me that's done that in our case. So that's, <laughs> that's the, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll take so claim for go that.
2: Go but the three of us are all in academic practices, right. and just I want to make a brief point about that, we're we're all working with residents some, if not all, the time, and I think that that does play a, a different role. You have to you have to compare uh, academic to private practices, and 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 always take these studies into account because if you're working with a resident, the first five, even ten cc's, if you're using local and not saline to localize where your needle tip is, or to for whatever reason, maybe more or less wasted or not in the ideal spot right. so how many times do you inject 10 cc's and it's kind of above the the prevertebral fashion then you say no you got to pop in and then you advance and then you end up taking the block doing it yourself and <laughs> you just but, but before you know it you use 30 cc's of half percent ropivacaine and right. you still have to chart it because it's in the patient so i think you, you know that the, the who's doing it does matter
0: so let me jump jump ahead for the sake of time because I want to try to keep us within the half-hour time frame here. I want to jump ahead a little bit to some of these more specific blocks um, that they talk about. So you mentioned, Eric, earlier about the supraclavicular block, and one of the interesting things I found in this article was they talk about the combination of a supraclavicular block with an infraclavicular block to cover both the— I'm mean, sorry, super scapular block with a supraclavicular block using the superficial cervical plexus and an infraclavicular block, and that way you get the cape-like anesthesia from the supraclavicular block, the posterior aspect of the shoulder with the suprascapular block, and the anterior portion of the uh, the, um, shoulder from the infraclavicular block. Um, You know, thinking back to your patient that you had really good success on, do you think, wow, maybe if I added infraclavicular, she would have done even better in that situation?
2: It's a good question. I mean, it's impossible to answer, but I think that we were able to you know, we were able to cover the skin, like I said, and some of the rotator cuff muscles and the, the, the posterior portion of the shoulder. I know obviously the anterior portion is the part that was probably, you know, pretty much left unblocked and we probably could have still done that, but because it was, we were doing it for, you know, we hadn't done too many of those blocks before and we were kind of experimenting with it. I think we were a little more hesitant to, uh, to, to, to combine all the blocks. But I think going forward, I think as, as it gets done more and we just gain more confidence doing it, I mean, infraclavicular block itself is not really the challenge, but it's just a combination of all of them. I think, well, I, I think there's a good chance that, you know, people could do better and those, you know rare patients can get those blocks.
0: I mean, that was what I was struck with when I came out of this article, when I was trying to say, okay, what is my take home message? My take home message was one in cases where there's a patient at risk, if I'm going to do an interscaling, low volume, low concentration, slow injection, all of those things, targeted injection, all of those things are probably uh, one of my better bets to do on that patient. And then this alternative actually struck me as an interesting option, the the combination of the uh, superficial cervical plexus with the suprascapular and the infraclavicular because those are very doable blocks and, um, and, and uh, struck me as a possibly good anatomic solution as well as a pretty robust analgesic solution. Nabil, what do you think about that? Do you think that's part of your toolkit now? I think it's,
1: I, I absolutely agree. And even like in reading through the article, you know, some of the difficulties, like we have done the suprascapular block before as an individual block. And I think it's, uh, the learning curve for that is not like, you know, that steep. Okay. So this is a block that you can adapt into your practice. Um, um, the axillary maybe is not like you know, as much. I haven't done like you know a lot of like you know the axillary blocks as in individual nerves, but just it, going back to that article and to the explanation of the anatomy of the nerve supply of the shoulder. Itself, if you think about it, it's coming from the posterior cord, and if you just put some local around the posterior cord in the infraclavicular uh, side, okay, around the posterior cord, you pretty much cover that axillary spot, all right? Yeah. And you cover also like you know, a lot more. And this is something that we do every day. So I think it's definitely, okay, now well within our everyday, like, you know, common practice. I would even like, you know, top that. And if somebody just make the claim or the argument that the suprascapular, maybe they're not very familiar with doing the suprascapular. Uh, just, you know, when we first got online, I just pulled out an article from 2012 so that article was in regional anesthesia and pain management and they were describing the performance of the the suprascapular block in the supraclavicular fossa essentially if you trace the superior trunk okay from its origin and you trace it down all the way down to the supraclavicular fossa usually it is the most lateral structure okay under the omohyoid and you can trace it like you know back and forth going in and out into the superior trunk, and a lot of people now I've heard like you know, a lot of people in different conferences and different meetings describing the performance of suprascapular block as the most lateral point in the uh, supraclavicular area. So if you think about it, if you combine these two, I think you got yourself like you know a very good quick block that you are familiar with. It's true you're still in the supraclavicular area and you have some risk, but I I think the risk for Get in the diaphragm in that case is going to be much smaller, especially that the volume of lokal anesthetic you're going to put around, quote-unquote, the suprascapular nerve is going to be a lot less.
0: Okay, so plug time. If anybody doesn't know how to do this, they can come to the Azra workshops, either at the spring meeting or go to the cadaver course. You can figure out how to do these blocks, okay? So if you don't know how to do these things, we'll get somebody to teach you. That's not a problem. And, you know, you can read it in the literature, but there's nothing quite like a hands-on experience. So the last thing I want to touch on, um, and, and Eric, I want you to kind of address this because I think that you're a little bit skeptical about some of these other peripheral blocks, just like I am. What do you do about it if you want to put a catheter in? If you've got to put injections all over the you place, mind. you know, if you've got to do four injections to get them numb on their shoulder, where do you put the catheter? And is that going to be right. adequate for somebody that needs a continuous infusion?
2: Yeah, you actually you read my mind. The question is one: where do you do the catheter? And then two: can you even do a catheter? If you're talking three blocks, I think right off the bat you have to think about the amount of time it's going to take. And it, none of the individual blocks is necessarily time-consuming or difficult by itself, but all three together, you know, you're you're talking about three different needle punctures and th- you know three different needles, three different prepping procedures, three everything. So I think that that you know that becomes potentially an issue. Um, you know, is infection an, an additional issue? We don't we don't know yet. You know, at this point, is is injuring those particular nerves, even though they're smaller, a higher risk. You know, we don't know. But in terms of the catheter, um, I mean, a superficial cervical block that's really not amenable to a catheter. I've never done that or really heard of that uh, being done. And the, the, the suprascapular nerve is pretty small and in a very awkward location in 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 the back. So I, I don't really see that being feasible either. Um, I guess I guess if you're going to combine those with an infraclavicular, that's your one your one choice for your catheter. Um, you know, I I don't know how well how great the coverage is going to be in the shoulder. You're certainly going to get some coverage, but um, is is some coverage better than none? I guess there's an argument for maybe, but at the same time, you have the entire uh, post here and some of the um, some of the top of the shoulder not being covered. So our patient's going to have worse pain in the areas that are not covered and potentially have more trauma because of the uh, because of the numbness that they're feeling in, in the anterior part. So it's I don't know. I think if you just did a catheter there, I, I guess we'll, we'll just have to see what the studies show. But um, at this point, if for somebody who's who's not a, an interscaling candidate, in my mind, I probably would just not be doing a catheter. And, and don't forget that we always have the we always have the option of adding additives to our single shot blocks as well to prolong the blocks. I mean, the Beals group and and multiple other groups have, have showed the uh, prolongation of the block that you get with dexamethasone, there's clonidine, there's, you know, there's epinephrine, there's all kinds of stuff. So if you really want a nice, fairly long block, I think that's probably the way to go until we have any evidence in any kind of uh, direction on this.
0: So you got a sense of my takeaway and probably Eric's takeaway, Nabil. What's your takeaway from this paper?
1: My takeaway, I think it's uh, this paper is great review for the nerve supp- the anatomy of the nerve supply of the shoulder. I think it's a good reference for that. That was like you know one of the things that probably very well written and put together review. Um, also, like you know, highlighting like you know a couple of techniques that uh, we may or may have. Myth, like you know the papers that came about them um, for example the superior trunk block when they were describing like you know the block is done and targeted like you know at the c7 level and the even the point of injection so I think it brings like you know some very good points about the the technical alternatives okay that you may have and actually something that you do but you're not really you don't put it in the context that this is if I did this I'm Trying to do this, and I can avoid the the uh, the phrenic uh, hemi uh, the phrenic paralysis. Um, there was also like you know one mention in the paper that something that we didn't talk about. It's an alternative block that it's sort of an infraclavicular block, but essentially I I heard like you know a couple of people describing that block, especially under ultrasound when you put your nerve uh, when you put your ultrasound probe under the clavicle, but in a horizontal plane, as if you're looking at the mirror image of the supraclavicular block. Right. Um, and to me, that more or less like, you know, resembles the description that also they're referring to in the paper when Andre Bozar described like, you know, putting the stimulating catheter and feeding the catheter beyond the point of stimulation and really injecting the local anesthetic in a distal portion of the brachial plexus. That's why like, you know, he described that really... Very low rate of um, diaphragmatic affection. Okay, with that, um, uh, with with the technique that he described for putting the stimulating catheters.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of creative uh, ideas that came out of this paper. It's a good summary of a lot of those. I don't know uh, how many things are going to be impactful right away in clinical practice, but I think that when we're faced with a challenging patient, um, you know, it gives us some. Some alternatives to at least consider uh, instead of abandoning regional anesthesia altogether in some of these patients. And uh, I I think that's going to be an important part of it. Yeah, Eric? The only thing I was going to
2: just jump in real quick, uh, um, I think it also can give our surgical colleagues confidence in us when we have some some alternatives for some of these patients instead of the, uh, you know, cause from the surgeon's mind, it's like the surgeon's operating on the patient's shoulder. Yes. The patient has, you know, some of these diseases, COPD, coronary disease, something, something about the kidney. But, you know, it's nice for us to be able and these people to be able to offer something rather than just say, sorry, you're going to have to go with morphine and then it becomes a surgeon's headache. Right. I think it kind of shows that we're keeping up with the literature and we're advancing our skill set as, as time progresses. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Well, I'm going to wind up this episode of the Azra Wrap Podcast. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you guys. And um, uh, just one more time, remind everybody, go to Azra.com. There's a ton of great material on there. The newsletter's on there. The educational resources are on there. There's all the information about the spring meeting and all the different workshops available. And you can find a link to this podcast there as well. Tell your friends. Make sure they are listening as well. We've got some uh, really good guests lined up for the next couple of months. We're going to stay on track of it. No more holidays for a few months for uh, Eric and I as we're trying to get this show out uh, for the next few. And then we've got some exciting stuff planned for the meeting, too. We're going to try to do some interesting stuff at the spring meeting with this podcast. So keep your ears open and uh, see what's coming up. And thank you guys for a wonderful show.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Raj. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to join you guys and talk about uh, different stuff. It's always fun. Thank you very much for having me. Good stuff. See you in San Francisco.
0: All right. Bye, guys. All right.
1: But see you before that.